CorporalNetwork.com. This episode of The Tome Show is brought to you by listeners like you. Thanks for using the Tome's Amazon and DNA Classics affiliate links. Welcome to the Tome Book Club for June 2015. The Tome is a D&D news, reviews, and interview show, and I'm your Tome host, Tracy Hurley. And I'm your co-host, Jeff Greiner. In each book club episode, we discuss one D&D-related book, spoilers be damned, in full book club style, and our book that this time around is Of Dice and Men by David M. E. Walt. And uh, so this month we read that second half. It's about a history of Dungeons & Dragons, but also his own personal path through D&D. Uh, and we also talked to the author, David M. Ewald. So let's go ahead and, and cut with the, the intro. Although, hey, hey everybody, Eric's here too. Yes! <laughs> Dang it, I copied and pasted last time, last month's script and I forgot oh. to put Eric in that one, so I forgot him again. <laughs> not make your wisdom roll. I did not make my wisdom, well, I didn't make my, yeah, I don't know what it was. You got a, you got a four on your perception check. I was caught by surprise on this whole episode tonight, so. <laughs> All right, well. Eric is here, and we're glad he is. So, Eric, let's start with you. How did the uh, second half of the book hold up? Uh, well, it's a, it's a good mix between going through the history and saying some stuff and going through uh, his personal experience, although near the end it delves more into his personal experience and his personal journey of as a gamer. Mm-hmm. Of starting D and D, then actually trying out jamming uh, uh, and even trying to create his own setting. Yeah, and it was interesting. Um, I mean, we left off when we left off the story uh, for the first half. We were just about to get into the Arneson Gygax uh, rivalry, I guess uh, we could call it. Uh, and that was good uh, information for me to have. I'd always known that there was something that happened or whatever, but I never really knew much of the details or bothered to to find out much of the details. So it was interesting to get all that. But you're right. There's a, there's a lot of the, the conversation about his personal story. Uh, one of the things I noticed when he talked about his personal story is he discussed um, his – his playing of, of games and his playing of D&D specifically uh, in terms of like an addiction. Right. And, and even though he established that and he recognized that, it never really like then developed anywhere. Like it never resolved. No. So sh- yeah. sh- should we just assume now that, that David M. Ewalt is, is addicted to D&D and he's okay with that? Well, hopefully his employer doesn't hear <laughs> I mean, yeah, he talked about him going to work and, and spending a lot of time doing non-work stuff, right? Going on forums, working mm-hmm. on his game, which, all, I mean, I think it is something that many people who play D&D have had experiences with as well, but yeah. Oh, I would say many people, regardless of their hobbies, spend time at work oftentimes thinking yeah. about or working yeah. on their hobbies. I, I, I've spoken to coworkers at work who are sports fans and they check out scores, they check out stuff, or even show up at work with a jersey of their favorite uh, team. We have people set up TVs so they can watch the games. So, So, yeah, so it's not that um, unusual for somebody to get distracted at work. Turns out people uh, like their hobbies more than they like working. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> I know that's a shocker for most of us out there, but uh, I was a little, um, I don't know, I guess interested in, in sort of where this whole addiction thread was going. Cause like he was building it up as this is a potential problem in my life. And then it was never like a, and so I made these changes and found a balance and everything's okay. <laughs> like it was just sort of, this is a potential problem in my life, you know, and then we'll move on. I felt like it, it was kind of resolved in that he realized that he was, looking for the wrong thing because okay. it, it, it felt like there's so he goes on this journey of trying to figure out what it is to be a good dm when he finally decides he's going to run his own campaign and he thinks it's all about the like, the details or like getting all the rules right um but then he talks to more and more people and it really it's about um relationships and 
uh, listening to the other people at your table and making sure you have fun with them as well and, mm -hmm. and stuff like that. So that's how I felt the addiction thing kind of got resolved because okay. it was just, it almost felt like it was more, I don't know if, uh, if it's um, medical anxiety, but like kind of like an anxiety about running sort of thing. Mm -hmm. yeah. It felt like, felt like start that he was doing all this research, all this work on creating something, then realizes that, wait a minute, no, role-playing games is a social hobby. This is meant to be played by groups together and have fun as a group and contribute all together. Yeah. Tracy, what did you think about the second half? Um, I, I liked it a little bit more than the first half. I, I did, I definitely uh, had those concerns again about exactly what sort of book this was supposed to be. Mm -hmm. um, in large part because it, it, it is more, in my opinion, uh, the history as it relates to him rather than a history or even an explanation of D&D because it's really an explanation of D&D as it relates to him mm -hmm. and, and what he needs or wants out of the game and how he's experienced it. And I think that really comes through in the LARP area because mm -hmm. <laughs> he finally goes out and he experiments a little bit. Uh, and the almost sense of wonder that there were more women at the LARP mm -hmm. kind of struck me. Well, if nothing, because it was uh, nothing else, because it was different than his previous experiences, right? Yeah, the, between that and then when he uh, slept on somebody's couch, or I don't know, I, I forget exactly. He didn't sleep on anybody's couch. Uh, when he um, traveled somewhere and he got into a game, and that game had women in it, mm -hmm. that also kind of, and that's why I think it really is more a uh, story of his sure. experiences rather than uh, objective. I guess is the way I'd put well, it. Well, and and I, I think that's. That's fair. Like it, it's written as a story of his experiences, um, and and while it has a lot of, it, while it's also telling the story of the history of the game, um, and maybe this is because I have a degree in history, but I'm also acutely aware of the fact as I'm listening to it that he, that he's also not a historian. Right. He, he's a journalist who's telling a, a story that involves the history of a game. And so um, I have different expectations from a journalist telling a historic story than I do from a historian. Oh yeah. So, the, but my concern is like he, this is also supposed to be a book that's supposed to help um, introduce or explain mm -hmm. the concept of D and D to outsiders. Mm -hmm. And the problem is, is that a lot of the outsiders are are not going to be people like him. So I don't know how well it actually ends up translating. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. <laughs> and when we talked about this in the first uh, half. Um, I'm less and less convinced that it's really a very good book for yeah. non-gamers. You know, yeah. I think it's it's a it's an interesting book for somebody who knows a little bit about the hobby and wants to get a little bit more deep. Um, I found the the personal story that he's telling in, uh, interesting. Um, you know, that was fine, uh, especially the end character stuff. Like, I've got a whole concept now. Like, I want to do a post-apocalyptic Earth D and D fantasy setting. You know, I think that'd be Great. and I, you know that'd be cool. Um, and, and I get a lot of inspiration from those things. Uh, the pro your, the things I probably was were the least interested in was his little personal stories. But he also, um, you know, he's a decent writer and made him made him interesting. So I was engaged with that too. Um, I don't know that I would hand this off to my wife and say, "Here, here's what I'm doing every other week." You know, here's what the the podcast is about. Um, you know, because I don't know that it would. I think she'd get halfway through chapter one and say, yeah, I don't think this is for me. I don't want to read this. So. Right. You know what it kind of reminds me of? It, it reminds me of someone who grew up in D&D's uh, version of Shelley's writing. Hmm. In some ways, like the very personal journey, but in, right. in, in trying to provide context through that. And by Shelley, you mean Shelley Mazanoble, who wrote um, a couple of, they're kind of, Public journals, kind of advice, self yeah. self help D and D self helpy sort of things. Um, what were the names? Uh, Confessions of a part time, a part -time sorceress. sorceress. And uh, everything I learned, I learned from D and D or something like that. Yeah. Sorry, everything she's I know gonna I hate me. Yeah, she's gonna hate me for. As a side, are those good books? I haven't read those. Uh, they were decent. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we read one of them for a book club. In the early days, it was years ago. 
Well, and, and a common theme, uh, there, so there's common themes in both of them, including the listening to your players and trying to figure out what they're right. going to be engaged in and interested in when you run a game, which is what, what I thought was cool about both, like, the comparing them, is that they both came to similar conclusions, which, see, to me, seems to point out that that is probably a really good thing to know. <laughs> well, and it turns out that's not exactly new advice either. You know? It's not, yeah. <laughs> Neither one of these people invented the concept of, hey, you should, like, listen to people and talk to them, and it's about human relationships. And I know, you know. but you would be amazed by the number of people who... <laughs> Who will give the opposite advice? It's like it's yeah. the DM's game. It's their story. Yeah, I don't play with those people, so I never hear that. Oh, I've 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 heard those comments from uh, players who play uh, encounters. Yeah. So. Well, that's one of the uh, rare occasions that I'm glad I don't play encounters. But I, I'm quick to correct them, and no, it's a whole group. Right. So. If anything, I, I oftentimes find um, I have the opposite problem, um, is that I, as a DM, am always so worried about everybody else's fun that I forget that I'm supposed to be having a good time, too, you know? I can see that, yeah. You just pour too much of, your, of yourself into it. Well, I just, and I'm so busy, you know, managing this, that, and keeping track of these things and that things that I, I, st- I forget to sometimes stop to slow down and, and, you know, crack a joke and have a good time. Right. And I get to the end of the night and I'm just exhausted and everybody else is happy, you know? <laughs> so I did find it interesting uh, talking about the different editions, particularly um, because he's, he, when he starts talking about 5th edition, he talks about 4th edition in a way. like Yeah, but he barely, like, he just really glosses over it. Right. Yeah. Like, he, he avoids, I, you know, one of the notes, one of the questions I have here is to talk about, you know, because we asked, is he engaging in edition warring or is he just trying to dodge it and avoid edition warring? Um, and it feels like he has an opinion, but he's just sort of dodging the issue. Yeah, like exactly. he, he just doesn't address it at all. Yeah, he doesn't want to share his opinion and because it's a, it's a minefield. Right, and he yeah, re- and he recognize he re- he does recognize that when they're talking about, from I recall, D D next he does talk briefly about. Since he was at the at that uh, meeting and you were at that, yeah, Tracy. he was there with Tracy. So that's what I'm not sure about, but I I, I can ask him when we do our interview because they I think they had multiple meetings and I don't know if they had press because mine was similar but different. Okay. But I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, no, he was introduced to it before everyone else. <laughs> uh, and he got to hear the pitch. And and I think he got... It sounded like he said he was run through a game. So it's possible it was the same one. Um, I'm also just not sure if they did a separate one for journalists. Which is interesting because, like, the idea of having you guys go out there for that meeting and running you through a game... When we know that, like, the stuff that was around at the beginning of the process and what the edition was are, like, completely different things. Like, what, it was almost to the point of, well, if you're going to do this big open playtest process, what's the point in even showing you them the game when none of that's going to survive, you know? Yeah. I don't know how what I can say. Yeah. Uh, but it was, it was a very interesting um, process. And, I mean, part of it, too, is, like, trying to explain I think so. One of the things I will say is that we we played through an old module, mm-hmm. and um, the thing with it was like I had never played it because I started with fourth edition, so it was kind of like a weird thing. And I think it's it's kind of uh, similar to now where um, everyone else they made me go first because everyone else already had the spoilers, hmm. and uh, so I'm sitting there trying to f- figure out what to do <laughs> <Yeah>, sure <laughs> well from what i read from suppose believe he he went through the caves of chaos mm-hmm. in, in his book i'm not sure if it was the same that you went through but yeah um and that's what they had as the as the old uh right at the beginning playtest adventure right right yeah that's what i thought so well and and but but at the same time like 
we talked about in the introduction, he sort of talked about, hey, I'm going to make references. I'm going to talk about this and these rules and those rules, and I'm getting them from 3. Point, I think it was 3.5, right? Um, because that's the game my group is playing or whatever. Uh, if you hear a problem with the rules or if it's not your favorite edition or whatever, I don't want to hear it. You know, that was his sort of original dodge of, from edition warring. And we were curious, you know, okay, but was he actually declaring his preference and just saying, let's, you know, this is my preference and move on? Uh, and part of me thinks now having heard the second half that, that that was a little bit of what he was doing, right? Because the times, like in the first half, he barely mentioned any rules or mechanics at all. Uh, and and what he's mentioning are largely uh, addition neutral sort of mechanics like hey you've got a strength score or whatever right um when in the second half he the rules get a little bit more explicit like he's calling out certain spells or feats or skills or whatever that only exist in in one edition uh and and part of me wonders like he wasn't. He, he was clearly trying to avoid engaging in addition warring. He was trying to avoid getting into that all of that. But at the same time, <clears throat> most of the times that he brought up the rules, like it didn't seem necessary. So it almost felt like you know nobody gets to to speak on the addition wars, but I'm going to let you know which side is better. Yeah. Well, did, and oh, go ahead, Eric. Okay, I did notice that he didn't only state for third edition. He also stated stuff from. EDD first edition, where he makes references, page numbers, mm-hmm. uh, in the footnotes, uh, where he make references to creatures and rules mm-hmm. and all that. For so, so he did delve in other editions, but yeah, mostly it was third edition he was focusing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know. It was funny because I he was trying to be nice to fourth edition, and he even gives this. Caveat, like, you can kind of understand where 4th edition fans come from because, like, 4th edition did bring in new fans, mm-hmm. new players, which they needed. But at the same time, it was, like, afterwards, they were kind of, it. a lot of, the, some of them did feel like, uh, oh, it's great that you're here, but, you know, let's never speak of that edition again sort of thing mm. because it was so different compared to other editions. Yeah, and at the same time, I mean, as much time as we're spending talking about it, I feel like the entire conversation about fourth edition happened in about a sentence and a half and he moved on, you know, like he, he seems to just not even want to deal with it. Like, yeah. I he, mean, he, he, he was, did throw out, he did throw out though that everyone was a wizard and that it was yeah. like, he, he did. That was the thing that was weird to me is that it, it doesn't want to do edition warring, but brings up like mostly the negative stuff. Right. Uh, which was what, what stood out to me. And the other problem is like, I feel, so there are people who started with fourth who did like the more, uh, board game aspect or whatever of it, um, but like for me, the reason I liked fourth was that the social rules were much lighter mm. compared to th- three point five. Like because you didn't have all the skill points and everything, mm-hmm. um, I felt more free as a DM. But that stuff never gets really brought up. So I feel like there's also a large, just a large part of the the pre-existing fan base didn't understand all of four E players. Yeah. I like um, my favorite thing about fourth is that, that it was really easy to DM. Yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, fourth edition has lots of tools that helps the GM. Right. I didn't notice. Did, did he t- even talk about second edition? Because I know he talked a lot about four, first edition and third edition briefly. Fourth, but I don't remember him talking about second edition. Yeah, I, I recall in the history. Um, narrative there was there were moments when he talked I, I i sort of feel like he talked about second edition but he mostly talked about second edition from the the angle of what was going on with the business not what was going on with the game okay right so we kind of talked about that era but it was more about the business decisions that were being made and the glut of of settings and 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 whether that was good or bad and all that um can i just say one more thing about the edition warning thing mm-hmm. i think there was one aspect where he didn't do it you, that shows that he wasn't trying to when he talks about uh, I think it's breaking down a door in 3.5 where you do like the strength and the hit hit points and mm-hmm. and all that stuff like he showed that it was kind of a complicated thing and that most people <clears throat> just threw that out yeah no absolutely I think he was he <clears throat> I don't think he was wanting to engage in addition warring I think he has an opinion about the additions and and that feeds into the edition warring. Mm-hmm. 
uh, and and did not avoid those opinions um, all the time. So, and I think that's fair. Um, what, let's talk about the history then. Uh, we were wondering at one point, sort of, um, was this going to be a pro Gygax discussion in the the controversy between Gygax and Arneson? And then we got right into that in the next chapter as we as we came back into the second half. And so, how did that turn out? Do you do we feel like it was a pro Gygax or a pro Arneson, or did it come out sort of fair? I feel that it, he, I got the overall feeling that he was slightly more towards on the Gygax camp of the of the souls. I mean, mm-hmm. he was trying to be as neutral as possible, but there was. Just the way he was saying stuff it gave me the opinion that he, he preferred Gygax over Arneson. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I'm not, I, I can't remember enough to know whether or not he preferred Gygax over Arneson, but I think he does um, because cause he, he does illustrate that Arneson uh, kind of got. Uh, I don't, I don't know what word to say. I'll use kicked out, like pushed out a little bit mm-hmm. pretty quickly. So if you think of the game, you're going to think of Gygax. And I think he does buy into that Gygax mythos. Because mm-hmm. uh, that really comes out at the end when he's uh, talking about going to Gary Khan and yep. playing with Gygax's son and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. That his uh, Gary, his Gaxum. <laughs> yes. Well, and, and it seems, I mean... I think from what I know of the history, and I haven't, you know, double sourced all this stuff to to see another opinion or whatever. Um, but I think it's fair to say that Gygax was significantly more involved in the the overall development and direction of the game, right? It, not just the early on creation of it, but the you know where the game went, right? Largely because Arneson was pushed out, right? Um, yeah, and and, he, and my understanding was that he was a rather prolific like writer. He just kept churning out who Gygax was. Yeah, yeah, and that's the impression he gave, right? And that and that, that was the opposite of Artisan, right? Artisan, when he was on board as as a staff member, uh, the story they tell is that you know he barely had his name on anything. Right. It took a while to he, it took a while for him to write stuff, and when he did, what stuff he produced had to be highly edited. Right. Which was the, which was their way of sort of saying it wasn't really very good, so we had to do a lot of work to fix it. Um, yeah, so I sort of felt like, I mean, I felt like the he got to both sides of the argument. I guess that that in terms of this conflict, the story that I got out of the, out of this was that uh, in terms of the creative and sort of the heart and soul of the game. It was Gygax's, uh, but in terms of legality, Arneson had claims that that Gygax was not uh, and slash TSR was not necessarily recognizing and should have, um, not because it was right, but because it was legal, right? And I, and I sort of feel like that's sort of the argument that is made. So if you are more inclined to say um, what's legal. Is what is is who wins this argument? Then I think there's a case here that Ar- that this story t- says that Arneson wins the the conflict. Um, I th- I think if you take pretty much any other approach, this story tells you that Gygax should have been the winner. Does that seem fair? Yeah. Because there's basically a story about how Arneson was was pushed out, was not involved for for a long time. Uh, then they put out new additions and things, and Arneson said, "Well, our, our original contract said I'm supposed to to get paid for that because I helped create it." Uh, and they fought it for a while, and and he won his legal case. Uh, yeah, and my yeah. understanding from reading other like I read a different history was there were some key things that he really contributed. That make it difficult to. I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just try not to pick a side, which probably yeah. is. Well, well and none, nobody today has to, right? Because yeah. neither one of these gentlemen is around, and neither one of these gentlemen is still fighting this fight, right? It, it's long settled. Yeah. Yeah. The, the side that I like to propose is that both of them were involved, and both of them contributed to the hobby that we love. Yeah. yeah. I think it, it's. Will, I'm willing to say that. 
both of these people are integral to the creation of what is the the role playing game as we know it. Um, I'm also think I'm willing to say, at least my impression from reading this book, um, is that Gygax was more involved in the and more more essential in the development of Dungeons and Dragons once role playing games were sort of created. Does that seem fair? He was more involved in the business and and turning out stuff and basically. I think he was he was more involved in everything when it comes to D and D than than Dave Arneson. Uh, once once you know the the, 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 the that the first har- step of creation is done, uh, Gygax sort of has the reins from, from at least more so than Arneson does. Well, but there's I mean, I feel like there's some difficulties with making. I mean, because you could say yeah, because he, Arneson kind of got. Pushed out, so <laughs> sure, but uh, that's why I don't. It's not something I really want to mm-hmm. comment on. Well, but no, that's but that, that's what I'm trying to get at is is um, yeah. where where does that you know because th- this story gives me that impression uh, gives and gives the impression almost that Arneson um, was really into it and helped create this game and then kind of lost interest and moved on until there was money to be made. That, I don't. I th- think that's unfair. No, but I think that's the story that of Dyson Men tells. I didn't. Uh, okay. I, I I got a bit an impression that when like like uh, D and E became very very popular, and you see Gygax going up to the west to and like going all fancy and all that, trying to hub hub with everyone, that felt like Gygax popularity got it over in his head and he would just go mm. overflow. So, yes, he was very active, but it was because, oh, look, I'm famous type. Oh, the, yeah, it got to that point by the end, especially. So, yeah. Yeah, that, that's like... And, and that brings up another duel of sorts, mm-hmm. which is uh, Lorraine Williams and Gary Gygax. Yes. In the grand history. Yeah. Uh, which actually, um, I thought that this was hin- I thought it was handled pretty evenly, given some of the stuff I've read in online about that whole period of TSR history. Yeah. Yeah, and was that was that the second edition era? That would have been the second edition. Yeah, era. that's what I thought. She, yeah, cause she was in. Uh, according to Wikipedia, she was in charge of company from 1986 to 1997. Okay. Uh, so and. So did she help usher in third? When did third come out? Third, third came out in two thousand. So yeah, third came out when I was in college. Yeah, yeah. Basically, ninety seven was when Wizard of Coast bought D and D from TSR. Right. That's when they started. That's when she was out. On, oh, they must have had. They might have had stuff. I'm sure they had stuff because uh, during the second edition stuff, they had some books. Like the skills and powers, yeah, yeah. tactics that were leading towards uh, third edition. Well, and that's common, right? Towards the end of third edition, there was the the Book of Nine Swords, uh, as well as then Star Wars Saga that came out. Both of which were sort of evolving towards fourth edition. So yeah, yeah. But like, so part of it because like you were trying to make the you were trying to say like the thing about Dave Arneson only looking at the money thing, but if you look at the mm-hmm. The discussion between Lorraine, like the discussion about the disagreements between Lorraine Williams and Gary Gygax, like he's got a house, he's mm-hmm. spending all this money trying to get movie stuff. Oh yeah, he was he was what renting a mansion in L.A. Yeah, and that's why like that's why it makes me uncomfortable to try to. Oh no no, yeah. G- Gygax, especially by that by that the end there the what eighties and nineties, he was definitely like caught up in in the money. Um, in a in an unhealthy way, uh, and and t- like he had, they had an island or something off the coast of England that he just really didn't want to give up when the the accountants told him, "Look, you can't afford this anymore. We got to get rid of it." Yeah, because yeah. what was he was spending ten thousand to twenty thousand dollars a month. Yeah, so. so I I know people who totally hate Lorraine Williams, and it may I, and I don't know. I still don't feel like I know enough to to speak to that, but. It some of the some of the stuffs going on. It's almost like it was an impossible job. Yeah, for well, anybody. 
What's amazing to me is how good the game was, <laughs> considering all the business issues that that was going on. Like it, it was clearly what, and it feels like, and this, the narrative tells it this way that it very much feels like um, a company that should have been small to medium in size all along and got way too big and didn't know how to deal with itself, right? Right. The, the people there didn't know how to handle the the fame, didn't know how to handle the money, didn't know how to handle the business. They were never uh, – most of them were never business people, which is why they brought in Lorraine because she had the business experience or whatever. Um, so yeah, there was – there was they were clearly um, – should got too big for their britches. Um, yeah, and part of the, the takeover was I felt – and this could be wrong – I could be remembering incorrectly – was that Gygax was trying to push it in a particular direction that wasn't working well for the company and Lorraine saw it and decided to do something, mm-hmm. uh, which is why – like with the whole uh, pushing out Arneson thing. But the other thing is the, – the, uh, the other interesting thing is we're talking about this high-level business disagreements, but isn't that what kind of allows for the uh, – uh, somebody to distract the eye of Sauron, and then we get like things like Planescape. <laughs> right. Yeah, we've heard those stories, right? From like Monty yeah. Cook, I think it was, that yeah. talked about that. that... Well, Planescape Pla- Pla- during that time was during the time of Lorraine Williams. Right. Yeah. And, and, and Monty Cook told us the story when we did the, the interview and the review of Planescape stuff with him. Um, told us sort of there was the, this idea of the eye of Sauron, right? That they were the higher ups in the company were paying very careful attention and, and took a lot of editorial control over the creative people and whatever. Uh, but every now and then you, you could get them distracted on something and, and like get something through without them noticing it. Right. Uh, and so that was the idea of, of how Planescape came about is that um, all of this business stuff was going on. And so the higher ups were busy dealing with that. And meanwhile, Monty Cook and crew were able to say, hey, sweet, we got this Planescape setting. Let's just publish it. And maybe they won't notice, you know, which, you know, sometimes that works and some, sometimes it's, you know, birthright. <laughs> which some people really like. So. Which some people really like. I'm just not one of them. <laughs> Or, really like concept, or what, what was right? the other one with uh, with the the red mineral cinnabar? Red steel, red steel, red steel. Yeah, that's another. Uh, that that apparently is not well liked. Yeah, I don't know too many people that are into that. Yeah. So. Then you get spelljammer. I, I have a fondness for spelljammer. <laughs> I, I understand. Like- I understand how bad and corny it is, but at the same time, like it has a special place in my heart. Yeah. No. Totally. It's fun. <laughs> I've been played Spelljammer, but I I I read about all about it and I like the concept. Uh, oh, I have I have the old box set, although I think I lost the box, so I just have like books pieces of it floating around and and like like in the box set in the original box set, it, there were like cardstock cards of diagrams of ships. Uh, so you had a, a diagram and a picture on one side, and on the other side you got actual stats or whatever. So you could say, "Here is our ship," and it was fun times. But that has nothing to do with this <laughs> this book. <laughs> oh, it does have to do with this book. Is and I I know I already already mentioned it was him going to a LARP, and uh, in addition to the whole gender ratio thing, the thing that I find interesting is that a lot of my friends both LARP and play D anD. d yeah, and, and um, LARPing is one of those things that I've never really been into. Although he made it sound fun, at least this one, right? This specific LARP that he mentioned, and I forget where it was. New York, maybe? Is it New York or Connecticut or something? Yeah, something like that. Um, but it's, you know, with the with the, the set storylines and, and, and the level of detail and work they put into sort of um, engaging in that story and, and all that. Like the way they do that LARP, the way he described it, like I'm like, that. That does sound like a really fun weekend. Like, maybe I should check that out. <laughs> and I'm totally not a LARP guy, right? Right. Yeah, and also it was uh, interesting because they only allow – you're only allowed to play it once. And they, I think they try to get people who are new to LARP to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because and, – and that – I mean that's how they're able to have sort of the set storyline because they don't have to completely rewrite it every year. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm – I've never been interested in LARPing, but I might be – somebody might be able to convince me to go up to that if I could remember the name of it sometime. I know here in Ottawa there's a group that's trying to organize a LARP uh, based on the uh, uh, United Nations making first contact. So. Oh, yeah. There's lots, yeah. Of, lots of people doing all kinds of crazy LARPs out there. Oh, yeah. 
Um, and then the other thing I noticed too is like uh, with his post-apocalyptic game, uh, it is different from traditional fantasy in a way that that I think harkens back to some of the, the stuff that did come out, particularly I think in second edition. Hmm. Wasn't that when like we we saw some of the stuff that started hitting on science fiction? I don't know if it was first or not. But well, yeah. I mean, there were some classic uh, first edition, I think, modules that that. Uh, but what Barrier Peaks was a first edition module, right. and that's the the spaceship one. Yeah, and I thought there was like a bunch of that type sort of stuff in second. Oh, and didn't he say that that third edition was also just the whole D twenty system that could be used for anything? He did talk about that a little bit. Yep. Uh, and and he had a lot of positive things to say about the the OGL and all the third party products that came out from it and all that kind of stuff. Although I don't remember him talking much about the the idea of the D twenty glut, where yeah you had a lot of third party products coming out, but a lot of them were also crap. You know, <laughs> so right. there was a whole part of the history of that of that period that he just sort of skipped over because I think at this point, looking back at it, it's like well yeah, but look at all these great books I have that I wouldn't have otherwise had. And you can kind of ignore the fact that, oh, yeah, and I got rid of all those other books that were horrible, <laughs> you know? Right. And I did like I did enjoy that he pointed out the juxtaposition of uh, TSR sending out the cease and desists when, at the same time, they're getting mm-hmm. the same thing from other people for violating, for violating the, the IP, intellectual property. Yeah, of the different estates. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, it was an interesting sort of irony. I also like that they tried to say that the use of, you couldn't use dragons. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. From, from TS, from not not TSR, from uh, uh, the Tolkien, the people that had licensed uh, Lord of the Rings and stuff. It's like mm-hmm. you can't use dragon. What? <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure Tolkien, neither Tolkien nor Gygax Arneson invented the concept of the dragon. I think there's a history there we can point to. <laughs> oh. I don't know much about the history of like the orc that maybe you could make an argument for uh, that one estate should was the first to, to get the orc created, but yeah, I don't right. think you could, I don't think you could, you could anybody can control the goblin, right? Well, th- this is how we get halflings instead of hoblets and right. shiants instead of ents, right? Yeah. And at this point, those those things are kind of in the vernacular too. Like uh, I th- I feel like. Um, as much as people outside of, of the hobby know about ints, they probably also would be able to identify the, the term treant, you know? Yeah. And I just played a game, uh, You Must Build a Boat, which is a side-scroller puzzle-matching game. Uh-huh. And that had, I think they called it a treant in it, but I'm not sure. But it's, it definitely had those types of monsters in there. Well, I don't know if you heard, but uh, D&D is the secret code of the video game industry. Oh, I and comics... I, I've been amazed recently between like My Little Pony and Gotham Academy. Yes, and, but that wasn't in this book. He talked about that in this book. I know. <laughs> I just wanted to point out that if people are looking for comics that are adjacent, those are good ones. Uh, but yeah, no, it, it is uh, a lot of um, game designers have played D&D growing up. Right. And, that, and that's sort of a point that he makes. Um, and, and you kind of get that impression of, of Hollywood as well. Yeah. That there's a lot of Hollywood that that started on D&D. And it is amazing uh, running tables for young new players at cons, and they recognize the mechanics uh, on the character sheet because they've seen it in video games, and they never mm. realized it came from D&D to begin with. Right. Like, and we're talking about basic, like ha- having attributes. Right. Uh, and, and stuff hit, like that. Hit points. and Hit points. Yeah. Yeah, they they recognize it right away, and they're like, "Wait, I this is from my video game." And it's like, "Well, actually, <laughs> right, your video game got that somewhere, and this has been around longer." Yeah, and and they, he did talk about the early forays into video games. Mm-hmm. It's not just video game creators play D anD D, but just he also goes a little bit into the history of creating video games. Although I don't think he went, he didn't mention the Treasures of Tarmin or. The other D and D game that was for the Atari, I think. Yeah, he and he didn't. I mean, he really only talked about video gaming in their in the early days of D and D video gaming. He didn't sort of follow that evolution, which makes sense. I mean, that wasn't really the point uh, right. of this book. And he was just sort of saying, you know, they were branching out and into all these different licenses and, and that kind of stuff. And this is one of them they went to. We talked to, about Gygax's efforts to get a movie made, and all they ever really got was the the cartoon. Um, 
you know, he, he could have thrown in something about how, and then they got a movie made, and oh man, did they regret that? <laughs> I don't know if Gygax uh, was around for the uh, the D and D movie. There was a D and D. No, I'm just joking. People uh, no, like to no, forget that the movie ever. <laughs> no, there was not a D and D movie. The second one better. Um, better is a kind description. I think. <laughs> I think it's like uh, a joke with Highlander among my friends. It's like it's so weird that Highlander went from one to three. Yeah, that was <laughs> weird. Uh, yes, Gygax would have seen the D and D movie made. He died in two thousand eight. The movie was released was in two thousand. Two thousand, yep. So, but uh, no, I I always felt that the second movie felt more like a D and D movie than the first one. And what do so, you think about the third? I haven't seen the third. The, uh, that's the Book of Battle Darkness. Uh-huh. I, I haven't have, seen that one yet either. I, the second one felt more like a D&D movie, but I also didn't find it particularly engaging. But that's neither here nor there. Okay. We, this is the episode of Tangents, which I guess, I mean... Look, we're going our own personal journey. That's right. That, and, and that's where that, the conversation can naturally flow that way, and that's fine. Um, for, when he was talking about computer games, I, I know he mentioned about the CCI games, like the... Uh, I was beholders, mm-hmm. all that. Did he went as far as like Baldur's Gate and? I know I don't hear any of that. Yeah. Any other thoughts on the, the this book of Dyson Men? I learned some things. I have a, a better perspective of the history. I have inspiration from the game bits. Um, like I said before, I think the th- the the of the three narratives, the thing I was the least. Um, engaged in was his personal narrative, but there were some interesting things there as well. So, um, I mean, all in all, I found it to be to be okay. Would you guys recommend it? Or, or who or who subs- would you recommend it to? Uh, I might recommend it to people who are kind of like him. I don't know, or maybe maybe to other people with a caveat like this is just to understand uh, the different experiences. Like that was the part I had. The problem with the book was that. <clears throat> Because there's this, I felt there's a, this is how D&D players are. Uh, he was universalizing his experience a bit, mm-hmm. it felt. Okay. And that's why I, I'm a little, like, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it to a lot of people. Um, but if if you understand that and you just ignore it, then it's probably a, a great way to, to build empathy and, like, to see a different perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's... I wouldn't put. I wouldn't give it to just one person who's new, who's never played, and see here. This is how the Indian is how it goes because he. I felt that when he was focusing on the addiction part and all that, that might f- possibly frighten someone who's new. Yeah. I'm sure, but uh, but yeah, someone who's interested and want to get a brief overview of. The uh, history of D and D with some personal experience. It's it, 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 a nice, good, quick read. Mm. Yeah, I'd say it's. I don't know that I would recommend this for the non-gamer, but somebody who has less of a history with the game and wants to know sort of a little bit about where it came from and and how that all happened and and. and wants to get all the references from the the grognards at their table who've been playing for decades. Um, this is a good sort of primer on some of that, I think. So, you know, I wish there were more actual references from the Grognards, like things like Tucker's Co- I think it's Tucker's Cobalts and Dread Gazebo, and that sort of stuff would have been cool mm. in there. Throw in some of the the common the common the jokes of, that everybody knows about the, the the head of Vecna. Yeah, the head of Vecna. The I attack the darkness. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. All right. Do, last chance to say anything before we go on to the interview and talk to uh, Mr. Ewalt himself. All right. Then we're going to go talk to David M. Ewalt right now. Take it away. And I am here now with David M. Ewalt, the author of, of Dice and Men. Welcome to the show, David. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a fan of the show. It's really cool to be on. Well, I'm glad you listen and glad you enjoy so we usually start these, these book interviews with the same question. 
uh, and it is being as esoteric or concrete as you would like. What is of Dyson Men about? I mean, we don't ask all the people about of Dyson Men. <laughs> you you should them. ask every author from now on <laughs> what my book is about. Well, the real answer to that is uh, of Dyson Men is about role-playing games. It's about where they come from. It's about why we play them. It's about uh, what we get out of them. More specifically, it's about Dungeons and Dragons. But I think the the, the history of D&D and sort of how that game came to be sort of illuminates this larger question of like, well, why do we play these things and why are they so much fun? Okay, very good. Uh, and so... Drilling in a little bit, a little bit closer here. You, you kind of at the beginning of the book talk about audience, but I'd like you to to discuss the idea of who the audience for the book is. Sure. Well, I, I wrote the book for uh, for a couple reasons, and it was to address two audiences. One was, you know, I had played a lot of role playing games ever since I was a kid, and knew growing up there were always people who, you know, didn't understand what the hobby was, and some of that was sort of the very sort of benign, like you know, my parents, you know, were fine with me playing role playing games, but they def- definitely didn't understand what they were. Um, and then there was also, you know, there's always people who think that role playing games are something weird or satanic or bad for you, and so I was always aware that there was an, an audience out there of people who just didn't know what D&D and other role-playing games are. And the other audience I wanted to address is, you know, as I started, you know, researching more about the hobby and about D&D and where it came from, you know, even me as a player, I started to realize, oh, wow, I really don't, I had no conception of how big and important this game is and like where it came from, but also what it means. And so I also wanted to, you know, give a little bit back to my people to address, you know, the, the people who are fans of the game and be able to tell them a little bit of that backstory and history, you know, the stuff they might not know about like where D and D came from and, you know, some of the crazy stuff that happened in TSR. Yeah. I, I, get, I mean, that, that was sort of the experience of us as readers. Um, I have a hard time imagining handing this book to, like, my wife or my parents mm-hmm. and, and getting halfway through it and then them still reading it. Like, you, know, you know what I'm saying? Um, I just feel like if you've gotten halfway through the book at that point, you're either interested enough that you, you're playing a game now you know you've asked somebody and you've started playing or you've given it up because it gets pretty uh i don't know know how gritty it gets but it gets fairly gritty for uh for a non-gamer to be reading right it does totally i mean it it is the primary audience is going to be people who if they don't play rpgs regularly they at least know what they are and they're fans of them but i will say some of my proudest moments like post this book coming out i have heard from a couple readers who were like I gave this book to my wife who doesn't play D&D and now she understands and now she wants to join me on our next game night. So it has has happened and I thought that was cool. Very good. Uh, So I also wanted to ask, um, we're a little worried about you, David. Are you addicted to role-playing games? (laughs) I think it's a healthy addiction. (laughs) I definitely, I went through a a period and I talk about it some in the book when I was researching and writing this. I mean, it was really it was live, work, and play. I mean, we all like to play these role-playing games at nights and weekends and stuff, but I was, you know, reading about them all day. And yeah, I went through a pretty a pretty deep period of like, it was all I was breathing. And now, you know, I still have my weekly game and, you know, I you know I read blogs and listen to podcasts too. So I guess maybe <laughs> it is still a little bit of an addiction. Because yeah, uh, I, I pointed out in our discussion that, that as you listen or read the book, right, it, it sounds like you're describing how your addiction for the game sort of developed developed but then it's like but but we never heard like when you went through the therapy and got got over that or you know made it healthy or whatever right so it's good to hear that, that you're doing okay yeah if there's a cure i don't want it man this yeah. is a fun addiction to have as long as it's not a negatively negatively affecting your work right that's so far it's been good for my work so good. i got that going for good. me uh so a couple of of um conflicts in the story of Dungeons and Dragons, uh, I want to sort of get your take on Gygax or Arneson. Which side are you on? I may dodge the question and, <laughs> yeah. and, and not choose a side, but I'll tell you what I like about either guy. I, I, I really super respect Gary as a visionary and a businessman. Uh, D&D as a product and as a franchise would have never existed if it wasn't for him. Um, I really uh, respect and admire Dave Arneson as he was really 
just focused on fun and play and creating this game. And, you know, even to his detriment at times, he just wanted to have fun and do cool things with his friends. And I think that's a really awesome, you know, way to approach life in general. So talk about how you approach that conflict in the book and how you, what efforts you made towards balancing that discussion. Because that's a fairly controversial thing in the history of, of the game. It is. People tend to, to, to pick sides, and especially, you know, people who worked at TSR and were involved in the history of the game, you know, there were, a lot of them were kind of forced to pick sides. I tried to approach it as like, okay, you know, we're outsiders here. We don't have to pick sides, but also to to acknowledge each man's strengths and weaknesses. I mean, Gary, we all lionize, rightly so, as father of the hobby, incredibly important, not just as a businessman, but also really creatively, you know, gave huge amounts to the game. But Gary had his faults too. I mean, there's a lot of things, you know, we look at in the history of like, he could have run the business better here. This was a bad decision he made. Um, He acknowledged a lot of that stuff when he got older, but still there were definite mistakes. I see a lot of sort of like the bullying behavior against other game publishers is maybe not the most admirable thing. But, you know, overall, we certainly have to say, you know, this was a incredible man who did incredible things for a hobby same thing looking at dave arneson i mean you see sort of the creative things that he came up with the innovations he created the you know the world that that he sort of introduced us to but at the same time you know the guy you know didn't produce copy and product the way he should have you hear some of these horror stories from the guys he was working with at tsr and it's just like if only he could have applied himself and produced copy, you know, that people could could read and edit. And, like, it might have been a whole different story. He really, you know, pretty clearly didn't pull his weight at TSR the way he needed to. So you've got to, you know, understand that, you know, every, everybody in real life has, you know, their good things going for them and sort of have, you know, they have feet of clay, too. And that's true with both of these guys. You know, we see them as heroes, but they're human beings. Sure. So when it came to, to sort of sorting all of that out, uh, I assume most of your, your information for that part of the story came from interviews? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I approach this from a lot of different ways. I interviewed a lot of people who uh, worked with Dave and Gary, uh, who uh, were at TSR or, you know, uh, 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 elsewhere in the game industry. I also went back a lot to uh, to contemporary news reports and stuff like I did a, a a dump of literally like every newspaper and magazine and and local like TV news story ever that mentioned the words Dungeons and Dragons and so there was a lot of like you know news reports from like 1973 from like some local newspapers and I found those really interesting because those weren't colored by history you know you didn't get the sort of spin of 10 or 15 years later of people relating things differently um, and so from there you kind of look at all those different sources and piece together the story of like okay this is what I think actually happened and this is you know what people said now what they said then and you can figure out the common ground and sort of where the truth lies sure and how do you approach sort of um, a research in, for a book like this when as a journalist as opposed to say a historian right because mm-hmm. historians and being a historian and being a journalist are very different professions and yet I see some overlap in terms of what you were doing here yeah for I, I found it useful in this case to really approach the story at first as a historian and that's so I started out by doing that database search and reading all those news articles and then reading every book I could get my hands on you know there had been a lot of of books written about role-playing games in the 80s there hadn't been many for a while but I got you know old copies of all this stuff I got copies of all of Gary's old books and so I approached at the beginning of the historian just to learn okay what was said then? What's the sort of primary research materials I can get my hands on? But then as a journalist, that's sort of your background, and that's where you start to figure out the story. And then that's what you use going into interviews, start to talk to people and say, okay, I read this. Does this sound right to you? Or what was your take on this? And so the whole second part of it is really was a lot of uh, meeting people, talking to people, and also you know participatory stuff of, of going to conferences and conventions and playing games and stuff like that. So, so I'd also I'm also curious. Um, you, in many ways, this is sort of your narrative of being a gamer. Mm-hmm. So, talk about finding that balance between it being your narrative and being D and D's narrative. Sure. Well, you know, I, my goal was, you know, as I said, you know, part of it was that I did want this to be a story that was accessible to people who weren't 
as into D&D and role-playing games as I am. Um, so I wanted to have it be a history that was, you know, more than just about D&D. There needed to be something for people to latch on to. Um, and part of that's my story. The purpose of that was also, too, that, like, if you never have played D&D or a role-playing game like that, it's very hard to sort of read conceptually about, oh, these are, it's a fantasy game where you inhabit a character and like it's very hard for somebody on the outside to really understand what that is. So I used my own story and the story of the role-playing games that I was playing in as a way to illustrate for people who were new to the hobby, okay, this is what the game is like. So it's kind of a tool to, to number one, to sort of break up the, the relatively dry historical story but also to really bring people in and be like okay no this is what's exciting about it like this is the fun stuff and this is how people are are into it um it's a little bit of a cheat too is you know being able to talk about myself allows me to really convey to the reader of like you know people get into this it's exciting and sort of relaying some of my own addiction and some of my own you know uh desires you know gave me a chance to opine and be like this is what's good this is what's bad sure did you ever find that that because of that, um, what, that one of the focuses being sort of your narrative of the game and being a gamer, that it colors the the history piece that you tell. I don't know that it colors the history. I mean, it's certainly you know my book is not you know a it's not an academic history. You know, mm-hmm. it's not the definitive history. There's a lot of really great history work being done by other authors. You know, I've sent a million people to go read like. Uh, John Peterson's book, Playing at the World, is a fantastic, incredibly deep history where you can get a lot more detail than I, than I could get into. You know, I can't get into that kind of detail in part because I'm spending part of my, you know, my word count is going to these other storylines. But I don't think that, that it colored the history. It just definitely, you know, I made it a, a slightly different book. Okay. Uh, so let's talk about Edition Wars. Yes. <laughs> you never really um, talk about Edition Warring. Uh, in the introduction, it kind of felt like you were trying to say, look, don't bring your edition war over here. Yeah, uh, I think that's fair. And at the same time, you definitely showed a preference throughout the book. Yeah, I, I do have a preference. I think we all have a preference. I think the edition war, the concept of edition war is kind of silly. I, my general position on this is if you're playing D&D, if you're playing any role-playing game, that's awesome. Fourth edition is probably my least favorite edition. I don't care for it. I mean, I I don't dislike it like other people do. I don't hate it. But like, if I had to pick an edition, probably fourth and maybe first edition AD and D would be near the bottom. They're still awesome though. If you play those editions, that's great. And frankly, if you invite me to play a game with you, I'll be like, okay, I'm not going to turn you down because it's fourth edition. It's just with my friends, I'd rather play. 3.5, or at this point, I'd rather play fifth edition. So that's why, you know, I don't want to get too much into the edition war stuff, just because, I mean, ultimately, who cares? If you're playing D and D and you're having fun, what does mm-hmm. it matter if you're playing fourth or first or second or you know, what's the difference? Okay. So we, we've talked about sort of the research and, and the stuff in the book, and the book goes up to a certain point, just as fifth edition was being announced and worked on. Mm-hmm. Um. That was a few years ago now. How has your gaming life been since the book? So I've got uh, a couple campaigns going right now. I'm still running my own campaign, and I'm playing in a in a new campaign with the guys I I, I play with in the book, and they're both fifth edition. We're using mm-hmm. fifth edition almost exclusively. Uh, I still, you know, like three point five. That's what we played for many many years. But uh, I think five came out really well. Uh, you know. As good nerds, we do certainly have our complaints about it. And there are things we would fix, but I think it's a really good addition. And most of the people I've talked to have been pleased with it, and so far we're we're enjoying it. You know, we we tweak the rules too. You know, that's the nice thing about this hobby is that you can you can homebrew and the things you don't like you can change and adapt it. But so far, I've been very pleased with the way five, fifth edition is gone. What, what do you want to fix? You know, it's everything from like well, so our, our like our sort of official homebrew rules or stuff like now. So we've you know we we've, we've played with uh, how critical hits work. That was a big. I mean, it's a small thing, but that was one of my big complaints. And I was involved in the playtest stuff, and I kept complaining about that too. It's like a critical hit should be critical. Like it shouldn't just be oh, I re-roll the dice. 
Like, because with the current critical rules set up right now, we are real nerdy now, but I know your show, so yeah, it'll be okay. That's right. People listening here are used to that. The fifth edition critical hit rules still allow the possibility for you to score a crit against somebody in a fight and still only do like a couple points of damage. Mm-hmm. And that is ridiculous to me. Like, a critical hit should be that you just messed somebody up. So, the way I want to do critical rules is that it's, it's automatically max damage not just like bonus damage but the dice damage is maxed it's doubled i also like doing reconfirmed criticals so you can keep rolling the 20 and if you hit another if you roll a second 20 okay now you've got triple damage hypothetically you roll a fourth 20 you've got quadruple it never happens but it's uh, you know the possibility of it just makes it more exciting and makes it critical a little bit more special so little things like that where we're just tweaking here and there um, but with with a crit confirmation then there's a possibility that your crit just turned into not a crit well I, yes <laughs> right? it's true um, well we we i always I, the way i'm doing is the first crit is always a crit. Oh, okay. The second, the second roll is just to confirm, like if you're going to double your crit. So you're not going to, lo- you're not going to lose your original crit. We're not doing it like, you know, previous editions that have made you confirm if you actually did that. Okay. We, you got a crit. You got a crit. Now you can roll some more to see if you, you know, did double or triple damage. Okay. Very good. Uh, and Vampire World, all that's wrapped up and done. Did you, yeah, sa- we, did you save the world? Did you s- start the insurrection? We just uh, uh, a month or two ago finished up uh, Morgan's Vampire World campaign. I'm writing up some uh, a little essay about how it ended now, and we'll post that on my website at some point. But I can tell you a little preview, which is that um, so we did uh, we did save the world. The the campaign uh, culminated in a, in a big battle uh, where we returned to to Seoul, the 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 vampire city there, and. Uh, uh, attacked the vampire city and tried to liberate the humans within and it was really like an epic battle uh morgan kind of 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 conceived of the whole campaign leading up to that battle as like i don't know if you've played the the mass effect video game series but like in mass effect the final game is like you're running around getting all these different factions from the previous games and like you have to get your battle readiness up so we were sort of doing the same thing in the final year of the campaign it's like okay are the dwarves ready to help us in our invasion? Are the elves ready to help us in our invasion? Do we have the support of this navy? Do we got you know these ninjas or like so like we were slowly building up our forces and so the final battle was was pretty epic and it, I think it turned out really well. And something that nobody asked, but but it occurred to me as I was reading the book. Um, wh- so why in Vampire World are people not running around in cars and shooting guns? Uh, mostly because uh, technology has just been lost because humans were in pens for so they just forgot how to do for it so long like they were literally like think of think of it you've been locked up in jail and not just you but like generations of humans have been locked up in jail and only given the most basic like here here's some farming implements so you can feed yourself so did um, the vampires have technology then the vampires had technology but Ooh. kind of esch- they kind of eschewed it because they were vampires were arrogant you know they were like oh we're magic we use this we don't really care about technology we're better than that uh some technology did exist in the world um we found uh, uh a tribe of dwarves um so dwarven race eventually existed in the game we found them and the dwarves as appropriate to the genre the dwarves still had guns like they saved that technology it was sort of like an underground group of humans that have evolved over time so things like guns and things like that and cars did work their way into the world but in general like the vampires had really like all quashed that stuff all right well that was quite the tangent but uh, <laughs> i was just curious <laughs> yeah, good though, yeah. <laughs> very good well anything else you want to say about this book or anything else you're working on that people should go check out um well i still you know i'm um I'm working on a new book that's more about uh, video games and technology. Um, I'll be announcing something about that soon, but I still write about uh, role-playing games and D&D stuff fairly often. I have a blog I do for Forbes where people can see that stuff, but I also write elsewhere for you know various blogs and sites. Probably the best way to keep up to date on new things coming out is to follow me on Facebook or Twitter or you know my website has all those different links and where places to find stuff like that. And, and your I'll website be at all the- is? My website is davidmewalt.com and yes, Twitter's is. dewalt and um, you know come find me at game conventions. I'll be at Gen Con and PAX and I always love to meet people and play games with them. All right. I'll be there with uh, several other people from the show so maybe we'll uh, get together. That would be really cool. I like that. All right. And that's the end of this episode of the Tome Show Book Club. 
We want to thank Eric M. Paquette for joining us as usual. You can find him on Twitter at Eric M. Pac, P-A-Q. And thanks, Eric. No problem. <laughs> we, we also want to thank David M. Ewald for joining us on the interview. And we want to thank our listeners. You guys are great. And thank you especially for using the Amazon or D&D Classics affiliate links. Um, or th- some of you who occasionally even hop on and use the PayPal um, section of the website and just donate some cash. That's cool, too. And if you'd like to contact us, you can send us an email at thetomeshow at gmail.com or call our biz line at 919-BIZ-TOME. That's 919-B-I-Z-T-O-M-E. You can find show notes and other great Tome Show shows over at thetomeshow.com. That is our thoughts on Of Dyson Men. We will be back next month reading Spellstorm by Ed Greenwood. And a month after that, we're going to read Grindel by John Gardner. Until then, keep turning the page, Tomites. I'm on the wall.